Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, sponsored by United Health Group. Today is Thursday, April 8th. Tech stocks are up, the global middle class is down, and we're focused on what vaccine hesitancy means for herd immunity. Did you get the vaccine yet? It's become the latest addition to American small talk, up there with the weather and last night's ball game. And with pretty good reason, as over 42% of U.S. adults have now gotten at least one jab, while nearly one in four of us are fully vaccinated. It's the great public health success story of our lifetimes, with the speed of vaccine development finally being matched by the speed of vaccine distribution, a legitimate light at the end of the tunnel with normalcy on the other side. But, and you knew there'd be a but, not everyone who hasn't yet gotten a shot is eager to get one. According to a survey from Kaiser Health, Roughly 13% of U.S. adults don't plan to get the vaccine at all. 7% will get it only if required, and another 17% want to wait and see. That latter group, the 17%, is known as the vaccine hesitant, and it's been shrinking, but it remains pretty large. And the more unvaccinated people we have, the greater the potential for spread, or even worse, for the virus to mutate. So today we want to dig into the practical impacts of vaccine hesitancy, what it might mean for the potential of a fourth wave, and how we might arrive at herd immunity with Dr. Atul Gawande, a best-selling author, surgeon, and advisor to the Biden administration. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Dr. Atul Gawande. So Dr. Let's start kind of digging in first to this goal or idea of herd immunity, particularly given the the relatively large number of Americans who say they either will not get the vaccine or are hesitant to get a vaccine. What is there a numerical goal to reaching herd immunity in the U.S.? Well, you're asking two questions in one. What is our goal? And second, what is herd immunity? Herd immunity means the idea that we will eliminate COVID-19 from our territory, from the United States. And I actually think that that's an unlikely goal. I think our real goal is to get transmission so low and enough people vaccinated and protected in a variety of ways that our death rates are below flu levels at a minimum. So instead of a thousand deaths a day, we want to get down well below a hundred deaths a day. And our ideal world is that we would get immunity so widespread that it would be eliminated, but there's at least a couple of reasons why I think we may not hit that. Number one is we're seeing that there are animal reservoirs where the virus can continue to transmit, and that may mean that it'll crop up from time to time in the future, or it may die out on its own. Who knows? The other thing, though, is going to be that regardless, we need to get a high percentage of our population. We don't know exactly that number, but somewhere between 70 to 90 percent who are either vaccinated or protected because they've had COVID infection before to help us get it so it is not in wide circulation and that we really do have hospitalizations and deaths below flu levels. There's been a lot of news coverage recently about variants, and we'll talk about them a little bit more later. But variants, they get created more the more human-to-human transmission there is. So do we run a risk just kind of as a society that if our vaccination percentage remains relatively low, the possibility of new, maybe more troubling variants than we even have right now becomes higher? Yes. I think that we are likely to get above 70% vaccination. I think we're all, the, all indications we are that we will get to levels where it largely collapses in most of the country. But I do think there will be pockets where it continues to circulate. And in those pockets, you can have resistant strains emerge. I think 
the more likely place those resistance strains will emerge in the long run are going to be um, out in the globe as a whole, because there's going to be um, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people still being infected all the time. And uh, and those folks are going to be where uh, you'll see new strains emerging, uh, because it's going to be a year plus for the vaccine to roll out in the rest of the world. Does that mean that you believe that some of these travel restrictions we currently have, or maybe new ones in the future, that, that we're not going to have, quote, normal global travel for quite some time? You know, we've finally put ourselves on a war footing to take on the virus here at home, heavily through vaccination. We're going to have to run that for the globe as a whole. People who are vaccinated will be well protected, but I do think that the ability to have the globe visiting us is still going to be tightly constrained by whether they come and are and are well-tested or vaccinated. Now, I think the big opportunity really is that the United States invest in growing the manufacturing capacity around the entire world. That will be good for us and good for countries elsewhere, that we support their capabilities to just the same ways we've supported the capabilities to have flu vaccines manufactured all over the world. We should be doing that um, in this next phase of uh, scale-up of vaccination. We have to stop this from circulating everywhere. So let's refocus domestically and go back to, to vaccine hesitancy a little bit. You know, there's these two groups. There's the, for lack of a better term, the anti-vaxxers, the people who don't want to get a vaccine really under any circumstances. And then there's the so-called vaccine hesitant, the people who just aren't sure they'll get it later, basically. And, and I know that vaccine hesitant number, at least according to surveys, has been shrinking a bit. How important from your perspective is it that that vaccine hesitant group kind of get over their hesitancy quicker so that we can get to that herd immunity? How do we do that? The group who are anti-vaxxers is actually a small percentage. It's largely people that are, uh, have, you know, I describe vaccine hesitant as falling into people who are, uh, concerned and worried about whether the vaccine is safe and effective. And as more people are getting vaccinated more, and it's, you know, now in, uh, now past 100 million people, you have a lot fewer of those folks. Um, you then have the folks who are about a third of people are just, really don't like needles and have their fear of any vaccine uh, that um, that they have to overcome. And uh, and that takes um, work directly there. And then there's a very big chunk of people under the age of 50 that I think is the group that we have to work on, which is um, people for whom, you know, they think, look, this was mostly older people who died and I'm not at, as much at risk. And they're not wrong, but the result is that they're not out there searching the websites to figure out how to get a vaccine appointment. And I think the answer to that, and I've been running a number of vaccine sites and with an organization I formed called CIC Health, where we're deploying at Gillette Stadium and Fenway Park and other places. And we've found you really have to start moving out and bringing vaccine into communities, getting people signed up, hand out appointment cards, and just make it incredibly easy to get the vaccine and you start overcoming that. So I think the way we will get to north of 70% is by familiarity. People are going to get know more and more people that are getting vaccinated and we're going to bring it to workplaces. We're going to bring it um, into your local communities. We're, we're not going to, we're going to make it so you don't have to jump through the hoops. I think your primary care physician is also going to be a really important source of encouragement to get vaccinated and often providing the vaccines in the future. 
How much of vaccine hesitancy is, as you say, just kind of generally general um, apprehension about getting a vaccine or a shot in general? And how much have you thought is based, for example, on disinformation that people might have read about uh, supposed dangers of the vaccine, which aren't actually borne out in the science? I think it's um, uh, it is a combination of both because you have questions and doubts and then um, and it's hard to get the vaccine. Uh, you have to end up addressing both. And the questions and doubts are mostly sometimes from disinformation, sometimes just from rumors or, you know, will I get sick? Will I have uh, a significant problem? And needing to just answer people's questions, be very direct about, you know, we we know these vaccines are safe after tens of millions of people have been tracked and followed, and we've had very low rates, um, you know, less than one in a hundred thousand having one of these severe allergic reactions. But at the same time, you know, 25% of people or around a quarter have some kind of a systemic reaction, whether it's fevers or being sick for a day. And, and that is, that is real. And, um, and something that uh, people need to understand it's an indication, it's a, it's an ordinary part of experiencing the vaccination. There are still, appropriate uncertainty that people feel has not been brought to them. And imagine if you don't speak English, if you are not an Axios listener, if you are getting information through other channels, you're not, you're not hearing a lot of what the other folks are hearing. And it'll be important to make sure that the information gets out from people that uh, can be trusted for every community. You talked about some of the local efforts that you've personally been taking kind of in the Massachusetts area. From a national perspective, what do you think the White House or, or kind of federal resources could do better in trying to limit vaccine hesitancy? I just think the most important thing is get the supply out there. And then it's different from state to state. I've also been partnering with more than 20 state vaccine leaders. And the story, for example, in Alaska, <laughs> we had uh, had a discussion with the team up there and they have the, you know, uh, um, the majority of the communities in Alaska aren't even on main roads. And so getting vaccine going out and being able to address hesitancy in those communities looks extremely different from what it is in Mississippi, where you have rural conservatives and people of color that are still having their questions not not feeling comfortable and answered yet versus in in Massachusetts where I live where the minute a appointment gets posted it's gone in seconds and the people who aren't coming forward are the ones who don't want to have to fight their way to it so what can the federal do i think it's hugely local they've largely been sending resources in the form of dollars and and support and i really do think this is going to be driven heavily at the state level. Um, and the more hyper-local it is, the more effective. I actually think that the less we hear from um, the politicians trying to tell people to go get vaccinated or celebrities, it is much more about what local doctors, what local nurses, what your local community is telling you, you and uh, to hear. And I think that's where it's got to be concentrated. Dr. Atul Gawande, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today are two headlines that may provide insights into where the world's economy is heading. First up is a new cover story in Bloomberg Businessweek about how the number of people in the global middle class fell for the first time in decades. And to be clear, this isn't the U.S. definition of middle class. Instead, it's based on Pew Research that defines middle class as earning between 10 and 20 bucks per day and upper middle class as earning between 20 and 50 dollars per day. That group, that total group, fell by 90 million people last year, 
while the number of global poor, which is those earning less than $2 per day, swelled by 131 million. Also, Charles Schwab released a report showing that 15% of all U.S. investors got their start in 2020. That's a big number, seemingly centered on millennial adopters who tell Schwab that they plan to increase their investment activities this year. And why wouldn't they? Stocks have only gone up for the vast majority of their adulthood. What could ever go wrong? And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven, Alex Sugiara, and Sabina Sangani. Have a great national empanada day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.